0: I kept to the access road, but he stepped off it, and wove a path slowly, in and out of the metal trees. He spoke to me as we walked. Hellazen. Useful. Clumsy in many ways, but always there. Quite brutal too, with their poisons. Not like the priesthood used to be, but then, these days you have so many expectations of what it is to have and use power. You were more accepting, once. We really should take some infants, raise them ourselves. More effort initially, but better results in the longer term. He touched each tree as he passed, trailing his fingers over them. Very much like the way Susan and I had touched the standing stones at Brodka With fascination. Will you tell me what the spirals are? I asked. He shook his head. No, he said. You wouldn't believe me, and it doesn't matter anyway. The files that your friend's brother discovered have been... adjusted, as have those in that archive you found. Nice work on that, by the way. All in all, it was a trivial exercise for us to set matters right. They have to be doing something, I said. There are hundreds or thousands of them, appearing and then disappearing. The patterns seem to flow and pulse, they show up on the satellite images, but there's no eyewitness reports of anything like them. None that you have seen, he replied. Objects in the sky. Hundreds of meters in diameter, I said. White shapes that hang there, slowly moving. And what do you call those? Clouds, he suggested. THE SKY MACHINE by Martin Lydermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Lidermont. CHAPTER TEN THE SKY MACHINE Don't insult my intelligence, I said. I'm not, he replied, calmly. He seemed completely unperturbed, as though our conversation might blow away on the breeze at any moment. Dandelion seed words, swirling into the air. I'm not insulting you. Ask anyone who stood there and looked up on those days, at those times. They saw clouds. They have always seen clouds. And when the sky was clear they saw nothing. They always see nothing. What's so strange about that? He wasn't taunting me. He seemed genuinely puzzled by my questions. Why this? I demanded. Why the conversation? You're not afraid I'll tell people? To begin with, who would listen to you, David Forrester? Which is more likely? that the largest and most respected climatology resource in the world is wrong or that a single researcher, maddened by stress and continually making wild conspiracy theory claims, has faked some data and some images. He laughed to himself then and tapped the tree he was passing. His fingernails made its skin ring as though it had been struck with a hammer. Secondly, I wanted to see what you would do, he continued. Call it... Field research, if you like. It's useful to gather data. You're changing quite rapidly at the moment, and we need to keep up. Why are you observing me? I asked. Observing you? No, you misunderstand, he laughed again. I like this place, he said suddenly. Its absurd defiance in the face of looming disaster appeals to me. What do you think of it, Dr. Forrester? It's an experiment, I replied. Anything that might lessen the impact of global warming is worth pursuing. Oh yes, he said. I quite agree. I was angry with him, raging inside because I needed to know the truth. He just waved his hand slightly in a gesture to continue. I steeled myself to humour him. It's been built for a purpose, and when the work is finished, it will be dismantled, I said. The team who built it didn't know whether it might be worth developing further because there's not enough information gathered, and there are probably too many variables anyway for it to work at scale. There it is again, he exclaimed with delight. That wonderful caution, that scepticism, it's like a reflex. Tap, knee Tap, knee-jerk. Marvellous. I'm glad to be the source of so much amusement, I said. He didn't reply. He just kept waltzing between the trees, flicking them as he passed, and smiling. All was smiling. The sun had risen high enough to warm us now, but I felt chilled. As far as I could tell, there was no good way out of this for me. Who are you? I asked. He paused in mid-stride, turned his head and looked at me with a sudden intensity. Who am I? There's that lack of perspective again. It would be more productive to ask who you are. All of you. Where you came from. Where you are heading. The scientific community? I asked. He gave a harsh laugh. Think wider, he exclaimed. You're a fascinating subject. And you're like children, too, in so many ways. We called you that, you know, long ago. The children. We were like family then. And that's nostalgia. Or if you prefer sentimentality. There was so much we shared at the time. You would be surprised by what has been lost in this fast, hard, interconnected world that you have made. You're talking as if we're a race apart, I said. He looked thoughtful and almost nodded a slight acknowledgement. You'll recall the conversation you had with my colleague in that charming little cafe by the lock, he asked. I'm not likely to forget it, I said. Then let me put a hypothetical situation to you, he said, regarding the difficult question that he raised, Fermi's paradox. If there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, why hasn't it come here? Where's the compelling evidence for its existence? In fact, where's the slightest bit of evidence? Well, imagine a situation where that intelligence is here, all around you, but you haven't noticed. Where do you think the difficulty lies in that? Beyond getting past your natural incredulity, of course. I'll tell you. Not in any sophisticated technological manipulation of reality by your visitors. No. It's all about time and, well, fitting in. To really study a place, you need to settle there and merge with its rhythms and cycles. Put down roots. Get over any natural feelings of homesickness and start to live like one of the... I'm sorry, I was going to say Natives, but that's a horribly loaded word. The Observer has to change, but still not change. Inevitably, over time, one becomes somewhat eroded and philosophical. And maybe just a tiny bit complacent and, dare I say it, careless. Which is why you and your friend have been so refreshingly helpful to us. We needed that little nudge to wake us up and get us back on course. And so we have lived. For a long time we have lived. And you build, but you don't live. Like these. He paused and looked up at the artificial tree he was standing beneath. You put them where you want. Can you imagine what it would be like to grow from a seed like a tree? To be connected to one place because you are part of it, truly. Not just a transient making use of it. He started walking again, and moved out of view behind the metal trunk and its broad silver leaves. At Brodger, you were like trees, always, he said slowly. Your friend will be there if you want to see her. I was about to speak, but he didn't appear from behind the silver tree. I stopped and waited for a few seconds, then I walked round the assembly, but he was gone. I ran up and down the rows, but he wasn't there. The sight stretched away in all directions, line upon shining line, catching the sun, winnowing carbon dioxide from the air and breathing out oxygen. The light sparkled on the millions of water droplets beading the undersides of the artificial leaves. No birds sang. No insects flew or burrowed and no animals ran. Everything was silent. I was completely alone. He had simply stepped out of here and now as though someone had quietly opened a door and shut it behind him. There's a point when you realise there's only so much planning you can do. Events are going to unfold with an unpredictable timing, and in a sequence that is totally out of your control. So I let myself into my flat for the first time in weeks, and picked through the slippery layers of final demands that had washed up against the inside of the door, until I had turned over a couple of likely looking envelopes. One was a notice to terminate my tenancy agreement, with immediate effect. The other was a letter from work, saying that I no longer had a job, but that my bank account was healthier to the tune of a few thousand pounds in lieu of notice. I showered and changed into some clean clothes, and packed a few things in a rucksack, and then I walked out. Huh. I don't recall locking the door behind me. It was when I sat down in the plane that I first felt the doubt creep up on me. I'd not experienced it for a long time. Not since my teenage years. The suspicion that the world is more complex than it has any right to be. That our machines, our cars, computers, televisions, phones, films, smartwatches, aircraft, the paraphernalia of modern life, it's just, it's just too implausible. We can't possibly make these things, and yet here they are, all around us. We take them for granted. They stand like black rocks in white sand, like the stones in a Zen garden. But we don't contemplate them. Think how much underpins each of them. To make an aircraft, for example, requires the convergence of knowledge and skills from multiple branches of manufacturing and science. Each of those branches is formed and supported by other extremely unlikely ones. No single person in the world knows how to make a pencil from scratch, and yet here I am, getting on a new twin-engine plane that's going to fly me through the UK's crowded airspace and down onto a green landing field on a small island off the north coast of Scotland with as little fuss as if I were strolling down the road. (laughs) Totally and utterly implausible. I can see the pilot's instrument displays from where I'm sitting. Who is it who knows how to calculate and draw out those intricacies of glass and circuitry? Who has mapped the flow of electrons and made the tiny electrical impulses from controls and sensors speak out in these bright images? I watch those multicoloured circles and rectangles and thin black notched lines tilt and swing as the plane jerks and bucks on the currents of air. Yes, the plane is starting to move a little violently. Turbulence. There's a storm forming to the west, I can see it as we fly. Cumulonimbus, piling up as the air rises along a cold front that's sweeping in. Looks like it's going to shape itself into the classic anvil thunderhead, the top planed off by sheer winds at the junction with the troposphere as flat and as neat as if a chef had drawn a hot knife across piles of soft cream. Ah, this cloud has a vellum, a thin veil of white that shrouds its central mass, much like the one often seen girdling the classic mushroom shape formed from the smoke and debris rising from a nuclear blast, which is another impossible thing, but let that be. For now, I'll watch the cumulonimbus swell and tower. We won't be flying near it, the pilot will know it's easy to get too close. Planes have been spiked by lightning in midair. their crew not expecting one of the massive horizontal strokes that can snap sideways from the cloud, lashing out for tens of kilometers. So here I am Susan, held in a ridiculous machine, watching another great engine of the atmosphere take shape and thinking that nothing I know is real. At times our journey together felt more solid and more true than anything I had ever done before in my life. There was a sharp contrast between the danger we were in and the theories and ideas we argued over when we first met. Fear trumps intellectual niceties. Not something I ever expected to learn. But then you made it unreal. You shifted and moved like vapor turning in the air. All the things I thought I knew about you were wiped out when the hurricane of events struck and new forms took the place of what you were, or seemed to be. So ultimately you were a creature of the imagination, which means I'm racing to meet a phantasm, going under the watchful eyes of the creatures of my new reality, and I have no idea who they are, only that they are letting me do this, and I have no choice. No more say in the matter than a rat negotiating the perspect barriers of its maze. I'm sure that it's the fact that I have been curious, and the extent of my inquisitiveness, that is of interest to them. And at the end of the maze, you are my reward. The plane is outrunning the storm now. That slanted, clotted, cankered tower with its white anvil head is falling behind. But it's big enough to pursue me to walk me. You and I, Susan, will meet on the very edge of the darkness, with the lightning clawing at the earth and the water, and the thunder interrupting our recriminations and apologies. The storm will remind us that we can only produce small, pathetic imitations of its rage and its power, no matter how great the pain. The islands are taking shape in the distance now. The pilot and co-pilot are chatting away to the air traffic controllers, adjusting the plane's trim and angle of approach. We're descending. It always surprises me how quickly familiar shapes appear and the mind adjusts to what it is seeing. We go from looking at a map of a flat world to skimming above fields and walls. Some cattle look up, vaguely interested in the plane's noise and a couple of horses gallop across a paddock. The low buildings at the terminal rise with the ground to pull us down and in along the runway as the plane meets its shadow. And I'm back on Orkney again. There's a taxi available outside the terminal. I get in and ask to be taken to Brodga. The driver looks surprised. Most people would be going to their hotel or guest house. It's late in the afternoon and I want to visit a tourist destination the moment I arrive. But he shrugs and gives me a price and we set off. The roads are busy, people are travelling home from work, cars are stopping, turning at abrupt angles or reversing and are being absorbed into driveways and garages. They are drawn in by their instinct to return. Everywhere things settle down for the long, northern evening. We drive through the little villages and past the drifts of light and the treeless fields of Orkney. As we travel, I hear the sound of a helicopter and I look up as best I can through the passenger window. The helicopter is descending ahead of us, flying towards the Ness a gleaming black reminder that there's a newer world that has allowed a place like Brodger to remain. Or is it an intruder, a lost thing that has slipped through the web of time and space to end up here where it has no right to be? The driver turns down the road to the nest, but has to stop with about a mile to go. A white SUV has been parked across the road. I pay and get out, letting the taxi turn and drive away. Something tells me that I won't be needing it again. The windows of the SUV are black and opaque. I tap on them, but there's no response. I try the door handles, locked, I look down the road, along the processional way to the fire and the salt water, and I start to run. Rodger is a jagged smile on the near horizon. As I get closer to the ring, the road climbs a little and I can see a cluster of flashing blue lights. A sudden horror makes me go faster, even though I can hardly feel my legs. For a second I'm back in that chair, paralysed. My chest hurts and my breathing is laboured. I haven't run like this in years. Closer and the lights are police cars and an ambulance. They're blocking the road to traffic coming both ways. It's too late to double back so I jump the wire fence and start up the shallow slope towards the standing stones. Wildflower pollen bursts into the air under my feet. A bird suddenly sings above, joyous in the slow evening light. I run straight into the arms of two policemen they pull me back from the circle. One of them says something. He wants to calm me. As I struggle against the bodies that surround me, I can see past heads and shoulders, and there is more evidence of the real that is unreality, a fluttering line of yellow and black tape. It circles the Great Ring, absurd and disturbing against the stones, intrusive yet coldly significant. It dances in the Orkney wind and it curves around the site following the ancient boundary between the world of the living and that of the dead. Beyond the tape, near the center of the great tilted circle of split rocks and cropped heather, there's a splash of bright green. Like the helicopter and the tape, it's something from the present, dropped and discarded in an ancient past. There are white figures bowing to it, kneeling, reaching out with careful reverence. They wear paper suits and blue plastic over their boots. I think if I wait long enough, Rodger will let her go. She'll come back. She'll come back with the stories from Carl and from everyone else who's entered here. She'll tell us the tales we need to connect the worlds, and then we can stand and look up and see more than clouds, and this will all make sense. But all I can see are the ghostly figures, moving slowly and carefully in the circle, busy with a different kind of ritual. And on a nearby mound, two people who have stepped out of the helicopter as dark against the sky as the forensic team are white against the ground. One of the figures is small and thin and has pale hair. He's raised an arm and is pointing towards where I'm being lowered to the ground, unable to struggle any more. Pointing towards me and, at my back, a tall grey wall of cloud shot with flickering lightning. The storm that has finally caught up with me and is heaving its way into the sky. The Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Lydermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Lydermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and The Pangolins. Additional sounds by Andrew Duke on freesound.org.